Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. And on this broadcast, we'll be featuring Paul Weimer, and he'll be answering your questions on dry fly strategies. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we are broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Paul a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill in your name and email address in the form on the right side of our web pages, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcasts. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and also hashtag FlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now. We've got a couple links on our homepage that allow you to do that. So share the knowledge. We'd sure appreciate it. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Paul Weimer about dry fly strategies. The Colorado River at Lee's Ferry is called by some of the world's largest spring creek. It's a massive, clear-running tailwater fishery that runs 15.5 miles from the base of the Glen Canyon Dam to the upper reaches of the Grand Canyon. At times, it gives the impression of being not one or two, but a series of parallel spring creek-like waterways. The fishing is great, and the scenery is gorgeous. These ferry anglers provides professional guide service to this outstanding rainbow trout fishery, as well as food and lodging at Cliff Dwellers Restaurant and Lodge. See for yourself why Lee's Ferry is on every fly fisher's must-do list. Visit leesferryanglers.com, that's leesferryanglers.com, or call them at 800-962-9755. That's 800-962-9755. Before we introduce Paul, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. On our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Paul's section that says register for our free drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We will also be giving away a copy of Paul's latest book, Dry Fly Strategies, courtesy of Stackpole Books. And to learn more about Stackpole Books, go to stackpolebooks.com, and you can see all the titles that they've published over the years. Now, here's how you win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. And the question will be about something we talked about during the show, and you submit your answer along with your name and your location using that text box on our homepage. It's the same box that you can ask questions in during the show. That's where you go when the time comes. So listen closely, take lots of notes, pay attention, type fast, and maybe you'll win Paul's book tonight. Dry Fly Strategies, courtesy of Stackpole Books. Our guest tonight is Paul Weimer. Paul is a Fly Fisherman Magazine contributing editor and the author or co-author of several fly fishing books. 
is a licensed Montana fishing guide, formerly New York State licensed fishing guide, and the owner of Weimer Fly Fishing, LLC. Paul has managed fly shops and guide services in New York, Pennsylvania, and Montana, and has been a production fly tire as well as a contract fly designer for Montana Fly Company. He is also the designer of the Daiichi Hook Model 1230, Weimer's Mayfly Hook. Paul is one of the founders of the Friends of the Upper Delaware River and the 2009 co-winner of Fooders Upper Delaware One Bug Tournament. He received the 2011 Upper Delaware Council's Recreation Award for his book, The Fly Fishing Guide to the Upper Delaware River. And then Paul's book, The Bug Book, was featured on Amazon as the third highest customer-rated fly fishing book by WideOpenSpaces.com. Paul, his wife, Ruthann, and their English Mastiff, Olive, live in Paradise Valley, Montana, where Paul writes and guides fly fishers in the legendary trout waters that flow through Yellowstone National Park in southwest Montana. Paul, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Thank you so much, Roger. It's great to talk to you again. It's, it's been a long time. Yeah, like we were just talking before the show, it goes back to the first show we did, which was in 2009 and there we were talking about your your book was that your first book on uh, it was delaware? my first book uh, yeah yeah my very first book the fly fishing guide to the upper delaware river yeah yeah april of 2009 so if you want to check that out just go to our archive and search paul weimer or delaware river and you'll it'll pop up there and you can listen to the interview i did with paul back then so good well we have a ton of questions tonight about dry fly strategies, and that is your latest book. When did that get published? This year, right? It just came out four or six weeks ago, something like that. Oh, four or six weeks new. ago. Okay, yeah, yep. brand new then. Yeah, well, cool, and it's a lot of interest out there with, you know, dealing with uh, dry fly fishing, so this ought to be a fun night to talk about that. Let's kind of talk here. You're, book is broken out uh, a little bit differently than other books that I've seen, and I'm going to kind of follow some of it, but uh, tonight what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about how you see the different seasons, what equipment you use. We had uh, several questions on terminal tackle, which is, I think, crucial to the presentation of a dry fly. And of course, your book talks a lot about flies, so we're going to talk about flies, the best ones to use at different you know, different times of the life cycles and so forth. And then, of course, presentation. Lots of questions on presentation. Let's get going, Paul. Can you kind of take us through, you did a section in your book on the seasons. Kind of take us through the different seasons and tell us how dry fly fishing is different between the seasons, what you might expect. Absolutely, Roger. In the book, I the United States, and that's pretty much what this book covers, is dry fly fishing right. in the United States, and it's an awfully big place. When I talk about the seasons, I sort of divide them between east and west, and there not only are there important differences between the seasons, there's important differences between the seasons east of the Mississippi River and west of them. The, the first season, which is the most similar, is winter. Winter dry fly fishing is usually the poorest. There are opportunities if you have tailwaters, rivers that are coming beneath a cold water release from a dam, or spring creeks, which have elevated water temperatures. Most of the fishing you'll find with dry flies in the winter will be with small midges or maybe blue-winged olives. But most of the freestone streams 
you will ice over if you're in northern climates. Now, my good friend Charlie Mack, who was a mentor to me, he used to winter in Arizona, and he would fish the Salt River in Arizona all the time. And I mentioned this in the book, and Charlie would always get a kick out of bragging to me how he was fishing trichos in February on the Salt River because it's so warm in Arizona, it changes the cycle of the mayflies there. There are certainly exceptions in the south where it's warmer, but in the northern climates, winter fly fishing with dry flies is sort of rough. In the springtime, in the east, spring is heaven. I can't think of a a better month to fly fish in the east than the month of May. A lot of the famous hatches happen then. The weather is usually pleasant. You know, the Hendrickson hatch, they call it the gentleman's hatch because it hatches from like noon till two. And the fish haven't been as pressured. They're a little more gullible. There's usually plenty of water in the streams from snow melt and things like that. The aquifers are recharged after a winter of melting snow. But in the West, springtime's a little different. In the West, we sort of divide it between pre-runoff and runoff. But again, there's another caveat. So if you're fishing tailwater streams or spring creeks like the Paradise Valley Spring Creeks, they runoff really doesn't affect them. They're emanating from underground springs and they're not they don't get blown out by just thousands of cubic feet per second water flows that rush down through them. The spring dry fly fishing pre-runoff where I am on the Yellowstone River can be pretty good. There's blue winged dollars it usually ends with the Mother's Day caddis hatch, which is also called, it's a Brachycentra species. Pretty much the, the same bug as they call the granums in the east. But usually once that appears, you get a couple of days, and then the Yellowstone River will become unfishable from Mother's Day until sometime late June, maybe even into July, depending on how heavy the snowpack was. Summer sort of flip-flops. So summer in the east. And again, there's caveats with all this. If you're fishing a spring creek with stable water flows and cold water temperatures, or if you're fishing the west branch of the Delaware with cold water releases, summer fishing can still be pretty good. There can be pretty heavy aquatic insect hatches. Terrestrial fishing is obviously important in the summer months. But you generally will struggle on the freestone streams as water levels drop and water temperature rises and becomes pretty lethal for trout. You know, once it starts to get over 68 degrees, trout really start to struggle. Now, in the West, summer, generally speaking, outside of this year, is one of our finest seasons. People start, runoff has subsided, and usually the giant salmon flies, depending on which river you're fishing, can appear, and it starts a whole progression of hatches in the West with PMDs and and ultimately transitioning usually around August into hopper season, which can be some of the best fishing of the year. But of course, the West, particularly the Rocky Mountain West, is really dependent on snowpack. And a year like this, when we had, we actually had a fine snowpack in my part of Montana, but it turned to 90 degrees in June, and the snowpack just dried up. And Montana instituted hootout regulations, which didn't allow you to fish after between 2 o'clock p.m. and midnight to protect the fish in the warmest part of the days. So streams in the west can suffer too, although if you go to higher elevation streams, you can usually avoid some of that heat. Now the fall, in both places again, the fishing usually picks up. Water is generally low. You know, they can be impacted in the east by hurricanes that we've seen running up the coast, things like that. But in the west, snowpack is is usually pretty much gone, and, and the streams are being fed by springs and, and things like that. So 
the other thing that is really great in the fall is most people are on to other things. People's vacations end, kids are back in school, so you can have large portions of the stream to yourself again. There's hatches in both places, the October caddis in the west, and you'll start to see little blue and olives again in the west, and the last of the hoppers and things like that will still stick on for a little while. And in the east, certainly Isonychia hatches, the slate drakes can can provide terrific fishing, and, and there's October caddis both places. and and I hope that wasn't too long and confusing, but that's sort of a rundown of the, <laughs> yeah, the fishing yeah. in the United States over the course of a year. Yeah, it's a very um, generalized it, rundown. Yeah, the um, one thing you mentioned about the West here, I heard a uh, an interesting piece. I think it was on uh, National Public Radio or Colorado Public Radio. One day they were talking about the people that were hiking up to measure snowpack, and it was the interesting part is you would think, well, okay, so you had a good snowpack, right, Paul? So the water just melts and runs into the rivers, right? So what's the problem? But evidently, when we get this hot weather, as that snow melts at the higher elevations, it ends up evaporating and seeping into the ground and never actually runs off. So we lose a lot of water before it ever gets to the stream. And I never even thought about that aspect of it. So, no, that's um, very interesting. Wow. Yeah, yeah, a whole new world that we're entering here on how that snowpack is affected. Yeah, yeah. so. It's certainly crazy. I, I never would have guessed going in May what, what this summer was going to be in Montana, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, and I think you guys had it hotter than we did in Colorado in general. We did get some rain, and it actually stayed pretty green even on the front range most of the summer here. And we didn't have the wildfire action that we normally have, which is great. Sure. Um, yeah, so, okay, let's talk about equipment. What weight rods do you use and why, and what type of lines do you prefer and why? Roger, I generally use a 10-foot 5-weight. I have a whole bunch of them. I use them interchangeably. The 5-weight fly rod for trout fishing has been the standard for probably 100 years. I think there's probably good reasons to that. With my five weight, if I want to, I can throw a, the smallest trico or I can throw a, a pretty good-sized streamer with it. it. It's just a versatile rod. It, it's got enough weight to it to help you with the wind, but it's still light enough to facilitate real general presentations. Yeah, that's pretty much that's what I use. Now, if I'm fishing a, <laughs> yeah, if I'm fishing a small stream, there's some creeks to feed the Yellowstone that I fish. I have some seven foot four weights and everything, but that's really to facilitate cast in tight quarters more than anything else. Um, right, and I'm right. a big proponent of the 10 foot rods. The, the leverage advantages with that extra foot really matter. And 20 years ago when I first started using longer rods, they all felt so tip heavy, but the technology today is really amazing and they, they feel pretty much like nine footers in your hand used to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people are liking those longer rods nowadays, even if you're not you're not dry fly for the reach you get for nymphing and so forth as well. Yeah, sure. um, we had, and I don't know why he's asking this, but he could probably clarify it more online if he wants. But Paul from he says the banks of the Beaver Kill, you want to know if you ever fish bamboo silk line? Is that an old sure, dry I, fly <laughs> uh, setup? Um, yeah, I, there's still lots of guys fishing cane rods with silk. You know, it's sort of the classic thing. I have probably more cane rods than a normal person would should. You know, they're, oh. I, I think they're cool. <laughs> I like history. They're, they're beautiful. Each one's different. But I generally fish them with modern plastic lines. I have a few old silk lines. 
that I picked up here and there over the years that I keep telling myself I'm going to refinish and use, but it seems like I never get around to doing that. So I'm generally just fishing my cane rods on regular old plastic lines. Ah, okay, okay. So let's talk about terminal tackle. One question from Ed Constantini in Wisconsin. He says, Paul, can you talk about monofilament versus fluorocarbon tippet material for dry flies? If you favor one over the other, why? Sure. I'm a fluorocarbon guy. I've been a fluorocarbon guy for a long time. You read all kinds of stuff about fluorocarbon. I've read that you should never use it with dry flies, that fluorocarbon will absorb some water and actually cause it to sink a little bit. It sinks more than nylon, which can tend to ride the surface. There's advantages that I believe exist to fluorocarbon, but they're highly disputed. One of them is that abrasion resistance. So if a trout takes your flies and runs down around the rocks, if he rubs your tippet against it, a fluorocarbon leader or tippet is less likely to abrade than a nylon tippet. And if it does abrade, it tends to hold its breaking strength a little bit better even after that. But a lot of this stuff is disputed. I'd like to say I probably use fluorocarbon for the simple reason that I've done it a long time and I've done it successfully, and that really might be the only reason to it. I generally, though, use nylon leaders. I am only using fluorocarbon tippet. A lot of people that like fluorocarbon use fluorocarbon leaders, and they're relatively expensive, and I don't see a big advantage for that. In fact, I see no advantage if you're using dry flies. Perhaps if you're fishing streamers or nymphs, there's an advantage there, but not with dries. Okay, okay. And you just, yeah, I mean, everybody wants to use fluorocarbon for their nymphing and so forth because it supposedly sinks better, it's clear and sure. stuff. But, but you just don't have the problem with that, the floating aspect of it, I take it. Never. And I'll use it with super tiny flies, when, which are getting harder for me to fish. It's harder for me to see, at least as I'm getting older here. But I've never felt like it was the reason my flies were sinking in, in any way. And again, you know, potential. So it all depends on the manufacturer, but there's also potentially some of the fluorocarbons have higher breaking strengths in general. And, and the fact that, you know, they're braid less is pretty much why I've used them. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And Kevin Howell, Chicago, asks, uh, do you ever tie a loop knot to keep your tippet from influencing your fly's movement? You know, Roger, I'm a simplist. One of the things I say in the introduction of the book is like 20 years ago, everybody was writing articles about here's the one little tiny fly box you need for flies and one spool of tipping, you're good to go. And, and these days, everything seems to be trending towards complexity. I only tie, what, four knots? I tie an arbor knot, which attaches my backing to my reel. I, attach an, I use an Albright knot to attach my backing to my fly line. I use a triple surgeon's knot to attach tip it to my leader, and I use a regular standard clinch knot to attach my fly. And that's pretty much how I do it all day, every day, every time I fish. I'm not a fiddler. There's nothing wrong with that. A lot of people, there's a lot of cool things in fly fishing, a lot of things you can mess with and get different effects. I'm not saying they don't work, but for my own fishing, I pretty much stick to what I do and, and do that. Um, sometimes I think people would be better fishermen if, if they picked just one or two things and got really good at just doing that rather than jumping around to a whole bunch of different things and trying to master too many things at once. Got a point there. It also tends to bloat your vest up <laughs> with all this stuff, right? Uh, That's for sure. you got more stuff hanging off your vest nowadays, and I've yet to, I'm working on this, but 
I got one of those little, uh, oh, I forget who makes it, a uh, little black fly box that hangs on your chest, you know. And <laughs> you, you get your clippers, and you have a few pages of flies in there, and you tip it, and that's about it. And because I remember there's a North Fork of the South Flat is real close to my house here. And I was there one day, and I was talking to a guy in the parking lot, and he showed me his fly box. He had a little box. It was probably three-quarters the size of my cell phone. And he just had a whole bunch, you know, like, I don't know, 30 flies floating around in there. They weren't even, you know, <laughs> stuck in foam or anything. He goes, this is all I ever take when I go fly fishing, and I always do great. <laughs> That's <laughs> I great. Go, <laughs> and I should come clean, Roger, too. I'm the simplest when it comes to tackle and gear. When it comes to fly patterns, I can't imagine there's too many people alive that carry more fly patterns with them than I do. Well, oh, on my boat, when I'm, <laughs> when I'm guided in my boat, I'm not exaggerating. I bet you I have over 10,000 flies with me. Oh, jeez. <laughs> you don't want to, you I don't want to, yeah, you don't want to lose your boat. In Boy. boxes of flies, right. It the flies everywhere. are worth more and than the boat. There is no doubt about that. Yes. My simplest <laughs> claim may, may not exactly be true in every area. Yeah, okay. I'll, we'll let you go on that. Craig <laughs> Portland asks about, do you use tippet rings? I'm guessing not, but do you use tippet rings? Sure. I, I don't. I think they're really cool. My good friend George Daniel, who was my assistant manager when I was running the TCO fly shop in State College, he was the first person who ever showed a tippet ring to me. And I get why people use them, and George was certainly really into them. But again, it, to me, it's just one more thing, and I don't mess with them. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Rick in Tennessee wrote in, I seem to struggle with curl tippet at the knots, especially 6 and 7X. What tippet do you use and do you grease your tippet? I'm not sure exactly what that means. Is it from the knot sliding? Or are they not seated properly, perhaps? Or is it just the tippet in general is curling when it, once it's tied to the fly? I'm not sure which. Yeah. Um, if the tippet is curling at the fly, sometimes if you're twisting it all through your fingers like that, you can sort of put a little kink into it. And if you gently just pull it tight, sometimes it'll take that out. If you're not just slipping that, that's a whole other thing. And you'd have to look at how you're tying your knots and exactly what you're doing. Yeah. I don't grease my tippet. Again, I have lots of friends that are good fly fishermen that do that. I should say it's not that I've never done it. Sometimes when fish are eating nymphs just beneath the surface, I'll grease my tippet just the last few inches of it just to help a nymph float just beneath the water a little bit. But I generally don't do that often, and I never do it when I'm fishing dry flies. Okay, okay. We have a question that came in on the Internet here. It says, what is, uh, it's from Brad Holm in San Diego. What is the optimum leader length for dry fly fishing in rivers blowing 50 to 100 CFS like the Upper Owens River? Sure, that is a, a real tough question. I don't know that river. Generally, the more placid the water, the longer the leader you want to fish. So if that's like a tight little freestone stream, and also the fish that reside there sort of matter. If it's cutties or, or little brookies or something like that that are more willing to eat any fly, then your leader length might not matter, and a seven and a half footer would be fine. If it's bigger water and flatter water, you may want to fish as a 12-foot leader as long as you're able to turn that over properly. 
a lot of people struggle, I think, when they're fishing small flies in, in what people perceive as difficult water, they want to fish a longer leader, but some anglers can't cast that. And I tell people it, it's better to have an improved presentation with a 9-foot leader than to be throwing tail and loops and palling up your leader with a 12-footer because you want to get more separation from fly to your fly line. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. Oh, so another one on the Internet here, Paul. Phil McCartney in uh, Kentucky says, do you ever find yourself with 10,000 flies in the boat and at the end of the day you have only used less than a dozen? <laughs> like every trip I ever do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm not saying there's a rational reason why I do this. I, I'm just saying it's what I do. So, I, yeah. you know, Roger, early in my formative years, I was fishing a tributary to the Little Juniata River, and there was a mayfly hatch. It was a dark green drake that comes off there. And I didn't have a single one of those imitations in my box. And, <laughs> and there were fish rising all over the place, and I couldn't make it work. And I think that gave me a little post-PSTD, you know, <laughs> that I needed to, to be prepared for any remote possibility. So that's the reason for all these flies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was a good one, Phil. Thanks, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> that was a very good question. <laughs> yeah. DB in San Diego wrote in and says, Of late, I've been reading in a number of articles on the Internet that it is thought that many refusals are caused by the glaring bright areas caused by surface tension at the tippet slash water interface. How best can you avoid the sparkle a floating tippet creates in front of your dry fly? Boy, it's a good question without a real simple answer. I've got to be honest, I don't know if I've ever thought that that simple thing was the reason why I failed to catch a rising fish. It certainly could have been, but I never particularly identified that. You know, we fly fishers come up with a whole lot of reasons why a fish won't eat our fly from time to time. But that being said, if you think you want to work that out, Again, fluorocarbon tends to sink a little bit more than nylon, so I would assume that the nylon floating on the surface might create that effect a little more than fluorocarbon under the water. But fish have so many things floating down. There's all kinds of videos you can watch of guys snorkeling and, and showing the underwater pictures of trout and everything. And there, there's so many things in the water that, that I think, a lot of times, fish get very callous and ignore a lot of stuff. Maybe in a big, flat pole in a highly pressured river that with real technical dry fly fishing, something like that could matter. And, and if that's the case, I would at least try the fluorocarbon. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Paul, time to take a quick break. But when we come back, we'll start talking about flies. And I know a big part of your book is devoted towards so Looking forward to that. Hang tight. We'll be right back. There are not many places in the world where you can fly fish for permit, tarpon, bonefish, and snook all within a few miles of each other, but you can in Belize. When you fish with Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing, you're on a private island and only minutes away from the finest fly fishing in Belize. You'll start out at Placencia and take just a 30-minute boat ride to your lodging on the island. Once you're there, you'll be fishing lagoons full of tarpon and targeting permit on the flats of Permit Alley. Bonefish and snook are ready for your cast as well. Charlie Leslie, with over 50 years of experience in the waters of Belize, his son Marlon Leslie and their other hand-picked guides know the local waters like no others. Book your next Belize adventure now with Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing. Visit charlielesleyflyfishing.com. Again, that's charlielesleyflyfishing.com. Or call 
303-430-4634. That's 303-430-4634. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Paul Weimer about dry fly strategies. If you'd like to ask Paul a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. Okay, Paul, talking about flies, I jotted down a question that I want to know because we've been talking about floating flies with leader and so forth. I guess several questions about floating. Do you pre-dress your flies when they're tied or you purchase them? Do you put any floating on at that point? Do you add floating just before you fish? If so, what kind do you use? Or do you use multiple methods to keep that fly afloat? And then we have, just to finish that off, a question did come in on the Internet. Says, how do you keep a dry fly floating after you catch a few fish? So lots of floating questions there for you, Paul. Sure. My favorite, I do put floating after I tie my fly to my leader. And that's important. There's lots of times I see people that, are about to tie a dry fly on and they accidentally drop into the water. And if you do that before you put floating in, it's already absorbing water. I tie my fly to my leader first, and then I'm a big fan of Tamco Dry Magic. It works terrific with all types of dry flies, including flies that incorporate CDC feathers. They come off an oil gland on a duck, and a lot of floatants, gel floatants in particular, will mat those fibers and make them sink. The Tamco Dry Fly Magic doesn't do that. And I basically fish the fly until I catch a fish or until it becomes waterlogged. And then I carry an Amadou patch. See, I do have some gadgets, I guess. (laughs) An Amadou patch. And I'll squeeze it dry in that. And then I usually dust it with a floating desiccant like frog fan ears or something like that. And then fish again. If you catch a fish on it, it gets covered with slime. That makes it more difficult. The first thing I'll do is swish it around in the water and then try to squeeze all that moisture and goo out of it with my amadou. And then I'll dress it and fish it. But if it's not floating, and here's another reason to carry a lot of flies, cut it off and tie a fresh one on. Let that thing dry out till the next day. A lot of times when I'm guiding, I'll see my clients dry flies. They'll, they'll catch a fish, and then they just don't float quite as high after that. And I think that really impacts the fish's decision on whether or not to eat them. I always feel like the high-floating dry flies, particularly when you're just blind casting and prospecting for fish, I feel like they really do a much better job of inspiring trout to eat. Okay, okay. Good. Good coverage of that question or all those questions. So let's talk about flies here. And I did get some questions here on the Internet. Uh, Let me just review them real quick here. There is one here. This one's talking about cripples. And we're talking about different kinds of patterns. And maybe we can address this in my question here. So I'll save this about the cripple. But since mayfly hatches are one of the most common hatches, and then you spent the most amount of time talking about it in your book, can you talk about the life cycle of the mayfly as in relationship to dry fly fishing and the different styles of flies that imitate those stages? And you've kind of identified a bunch of those in your book, the different ways they over the years, those dry flies have been tied. Can you talk about that for a bit? Sure. The mayfly life cycle, obviously, they begin with eggs, and you're generally not going to be imitating those when you're fly fishing, although I don't know if you remember Roger, like, oh, man, it might have been 25 years ago, maybe longer, Art Lee wrote a, an article about tying small little nymphs to imitate mayfly eggs, which was pretty interesting. 
but generally fly fishers don't imitate the eggs. The eggs fall to the stream bottoms. They're deposited by mayflies in different manners, which are dependent upon species. Some fly above the water and drop them. Some dip them right in the water. Some land on the stream side and crawl down and put them in the stream bottom themselves. One of the interesting things, too, when the mating cycle is being completed, a lot of times the males fly away and never get on the water at all after they're done mating. If you're imitating a mayfly hatch where the males look different than the females, like for instance, the Peoris vitreous hatch, the pink cahill or the light cahill in the eastern United States, the males and females look very different. A lot of times those males will never even reach the waters. It's going to be much more important to imitate just the color of the females. But after a certain amount of time, those eggs will hatch and turn into nymphs. The nymphs will crawl around the stream bottom doing what they do, living their lives. And how long they're on the stream bottom depends upon the species. Some bugs, some mayflies like trichos have a very short window between the time they're eggs and, and when they're adults. So the ones that hatch in the summer, they're having multiple generations. They may only spend a couple of months as nymphs before they hatch in, into duns. Other flies like eastern green drakes, for instance, will spend two years living subsurface before they hatch into adults. The manner in which they emerge is going to be dependent, again, upon species. A lot of species do it right in the water surface film. Some species will crawl up on the blades of grass, more similar in the way a stonefly emerges. Some will emerge on the stream bottom, like Quill Gordon's, for instance. And other EPR species, though, and they'll swim to the surfaces full of blue duns. Those flies will fly to streamside vegetation, and over a period of time, and usually the larger the flies, the longer they can live before they transition and finish their life cycle as spinners. A tiny little trichos is going to transform from a dun to a spinner within an hour, whereas a green drake can might be out there for three, four days, maybe a week before it transitions. Their mouths atrophy, so they're not taking in, in any liquid, but the larger the insect, the longer they can live off the fluids in their bodies. As it comes, so then they'll transform again and become spinners and they'll mate and the males will fly away and the females will lay their eggs and it will start again. As to the different ways of imitating this, basically, this is where a lot of people sort of shy away from entomology but this is where knowing a little entomology can matter. Mayflies, again, like a quill gordon that is going to emerge as a fully formed dun, is going to get off the water pretty quickly unless uh, weather conditions, you know, something really cold or rainy, inhibit it from hardening its wings. High standing patterns, for instance, like a Catskill style fly works very well for a quill gordon. You wouldn't tie an emerger style fly like you might for a Hendrickson, which emerges in the surface imitate a quill gordon because they're already fully formed. A Hendrickson is going to be wiggling just beneath the surface trying to get out of its nymphal skin before it becomes a fully formed dun. But it's going to vary, and the flies you're going to choose to imitate all this is going to vary depending on the species of insect you're trying to imitate. Eventually, when they all turn spinners, that's when we use downwing patterns. You know, most of them are tied. They either have some sort of synthetic yarn, poly, or outstretched wings or they have hackle or CDC feathers, but they're meant to lie motionless on the surface because they've deposited their eggs and their life cycle is now coming to an end. That was a lot of stuff. Did that all make sense? Yeah, no, it did. I want to talk about, <laughs> yeah, more specifically some of, like you, you illustrated in your book, 
the Catskill style is the old traditional dry fly style that we all know. Sure. But over the years, others were developed, like the thorax style, the parachute, comparadun. I think those are probably the most commonly known or used. How do you see, I would think that the parachute would be one where visibility is important, but out of those three, do you find yourself leaning towards one style or another? Roger, again, it depends on the mayfly I'm trying to imitate, but almost mm -hmm. equally as important, it depends on the water types I'm fishing. If I'm fishing fast, rough water, uh, something, a real heavy area on the Yellowstone, I'm not going to want to fish a comparadon with its body sitting in, in that turbulent water because it'll become submerged rather quickly. So maybe a heavily hackled fly or a catskill fly would be better suited in that position. But again, if you want to fish one of, like, say, a, a sparkodon, if you're going to fish a, mm -hmm. a fly with a trailing shuck, you need to make sure you're imitating a mayfly that actually has a trailing shuck as it emerges and not one that's emerging on the stream bottom. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. Where, you know, the knowledge you have about each individual insect, is there a resource that you could direct people to to learn about each one of those? species and, you know, whether they emerge at the surface or below the surface, of, you know, because most of the stuff I've seen is pretty general. Sure. The books, the Pocket Guide to Pennsylvania Hatches and the Pocket Guide to New York Hatches, the PA book I co-wrote with Charlie Mack and the New York book I wrote myself, the, the Pocket Guide to New York Hatches really should be called the Pocket Guide to Eastern Hatches. And it really thoroughly goes through all these things. And there's photos of the nymph, the spinner and the dun for every important mayfly species. There's photos of every caddis larva, some pupas, and adults for the important caddis, and the same with the stoneflies and other insects. Those are good resources, as is Alcucci and Bob Nastasi's hatches gets into a lot of this stuff, and that's great. Out west, the Western Hatch Guide, Dave Hughes wrote that with somebody else, so I can't remember right now. But certainly, Cucci and Nastasi talk about that as well. There's websites like, I don't know, have you ever been on Troutnut's website? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which is, yeah, I mean, that's very valuable. You can search insects by their common names, and it breaks down a lot of how those bugs operate for fly fishing purposes. So, so that's a real valuable resource. Yeah. Okay, okay. And any particular materials you lean towards? Do you like... Hair wings, do you like hackle more than hair wings? Any preferences along those lines? Synthetic versus natural materials? Sure. Again, it's where I'm fishing, Roger. When I was on the Delaware, a vast majority of my flies were, were going to be flush-floating things that incorporated CDC or snowshoe rabbit's feet, things like that. Now that I live in the West, a lot of my flies, floatability is just as important as anything else. Mm -hmm. But the West mm -hmm. is a big place, right? So if I'm fishing the Lamar Valley, a big, high-floating, chubby Chernobyl might be a ticket just because it floats real well and I can see it. But if you're fishing trichos on the Henry's Fork, you know, that's not going to work real well for you. So yeah. you sort of got to tailor it to, to the waters in which you're fishing. Yeah, okay. Talking also about caddis, because that's probably the other species that we run into more times than not. Comments along the same lines for the caddis, considering their life cycle? Sure. 
caddis obviously begins as an egg and, and it hatches into a larva which looks like a little worm beneath the surface. Those larvae live in different ways. Some live in little structures like the brachycentral species that live in those little brown, they look like oil derricks or ice cream cones. Some of them freely wander, some of them make nets to trap food, but all of them eventually pupate and they become a pupa. What they'll do is they'll spin silk. Those that live in little cases will close off the entrance to their cases with their own silk. Those that freely wander will make a little cocoon out of silk and they will lie dormant in there as they transform into caddis pupa. And it's the caddis pupa, that when they're ready, they will chew through their cocoons or chew through the, the opening in which they closed, and they will swim to the surface, and they're adults there. Caddis flies, unlike mayflies, mayflies mate while they're flying. Caddis flies mate on dry land. They can deposit their eggs in different ways as well. Most of them either dip them in the water or drop them in the water. Some of them will crawl in just like some of the mayflies and, and deposit them as well. When it comes to cooking flies to imitate that all that, of course, for dry fly fishing, you're only really talking about the pupa and the adult. Um, the other ones, you would, you know, the larvae you'd imitate with nymphs. Pupa, you know, it, it's still really hard to beat Gary LaFontaine's sparkle pupa, as far as I'm concerned. Right. And I would take that fly a lot and dust it with frog sandy or another desiccant and actually fish that right in the film when fish are eating emergent caddis and have done very, very well with that. Oh, When nice. it comes to the cat, I'm sorry. I said nice. So, I haven't tried that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, that's worked real well for me over the years. The other thing that works real well, too, is people will swing wet flies to imitate the caddis pupa as they're emerging. And you, you take a, an old-fashioned wet fly, particularly like the Mother's Day caddis hatch or, or the granum hatch. So you take like a starling and hurl or something like that and you dust it with a little frog fanny and you make it float. And I've really done well with fish that are getting picky on caddis with fishing something like that as well. When it comes to the adults, it all depends on the types of water I'm fishing. If I'm fishing real quick water, uh, a standard Altrock, Elkhair caddis is still really hard to beat. If you're fishing softer water, more runs or flat poles, the Craig Matthews, John Jerasek, the, the X caddis is, is really hard to beat. And, and tying any of those flies in, in different colors is, you know, you can pretty much cover all the hatches if that was the only two caddis dries you ever fished. Yeah, yeah, cool. Have any favorite dry fly patterns for stone flies? Out here in, in Montana, stone flies are real important. It's hard to beat a chubby. I think I mentioned in the book or somewhere I was, there's probably a month each year which the only dry fly I ever tied on my leader is a chubby <laughs> in different colors. And they just float so darn well, and, and those rubber legs make them look alive. And uh, mm -hmm. they just do an excellent job of imitating stonefly dries. Yeah, okay, okay. Let's take another quick break, and when we come back, uh, we've got some more fly questions. So we'll do those and dig into presentation. Uh, hang tight. We'll be right back. Enrico Puglisi flies pride themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and fly-tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable synthetic and natural materials to create flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products include brushes, fibers, and components that have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. 
Whether you want your flies hand-tied for you or you would like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com and do a little shopping today. Again, that's epflies.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Paul Weimer about dry fly strategies. If you'd like to ask Paul a question, just go to our homepage, fill out that form, and send it in, and we'll try to get your question answered for you. All right, Paul, let's talk about, let's look at some of the questions that came in here. Terry Little, Roanoke, Virginia, asks, in your opinion, what is most important, the hook size or pattern color? Hmm. That is a great question that's been debated, I think, since the first fly fisher tied on a fly. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I am not a proponent of exact color. I believe hook size is probably, I would say, presentation trumps both of these. But certainly out of these two options, I think hook size is more important than pattern colors. I tell a story in the Dry Fly Strategies book about a man that came in the fly shop I was managing, and he was having troubles with the sulfur hatch on a local stream. And he was out there fishing with a whole lot of other people, and everybody was catching fish except for this one guy. And he told me, I guess my sulfur flies were just too orange. And I said, do you really think that's the reason why you weren't catching fish? And he said, I do. And, and I said, you know, there might have been a lot of reasons why you weren't catching fish, but that certainly wasn't it. And he got a little upset, and he said, well, how could you know that? And I said, so you told me you could see like a dozen guys all catching fish, right? So you're going to tell me that all 12 of those guys, some of them would have tied their own flies. Some of them would have bought them at different shops. <laughs> they were all using the exact same color of fly. Coincidentally, every single one of them came up with the exact same color of sulfur, and he just sort of looked at me and thought of that. A lot of mayflies darken as they're exposed to oxygen. I think color shades are very important. I wouldn't want to use a black fly if fish are eating white flies. But other than that, I think hook size is, is probably by far the most important. If fish are eating size 16 flies, you might get away with using an 18 or a 14, but I certainly wouldn't want to have a size 10. Yeah, yeah. Ted Merchant in Massachusetts and this question is going to be one of those, it depends. <laughs> but uh, maybe you can help guide <laughs> like him to, yeah, maybe you can help guide him to figure out what the answer is here. But he's asked, when fishing still water in the fall, what fly is best for the dry fly, and what would you use for a dropper? Roger, we'll let you take this one. <laughs> <laughs> it depends. No, no luck, <laughs> It depends. <laughs> it depends. Yeah. Yeah. I think depends is probably the truest answer. I would have some suggestions, right? First off, you're going to want to use something that could possibly be hatching there in the fall, right? So the Calabatus mayflies, which are, they prefer to hatch in stillwater ponds, either that or, or large pools on rivers. It's possible to see them, so throwing like uh, an Adam's wolf or a parachute Adam, something that looks like a Calabatus dry fly, could certainly be your option for the dry. Dragonflies, damselflies, you can still see a few of those kicking around in the fall. That could be an option. Usually, sometime in August, there's mating flights of flying ants. You could use a, an ant pattern would be a good bet. If there's grassy areas around the banks of the pond, uh, you know, why not attach a hopper? When it comes to the fly you're going to use in the fall, 
Generally, I tend to use smaller flies in the fall. I would think something like a, a zebra midge or maybe a $3 dip, something like that that imitates midges and some of the smaller mayflies that are possible to be hatching in the fall. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Again, it comes down to whether you're nymphing or dry fly fishing. You need to study the water and figure out what's going on. Sure. Right? I mean, that's sure. step one. And if otherwise, you're just guessing. And you might do well with, as I've often done with something like just a parachute atoms because it imitates sure. a lot of things, but that's not the scientific way to approach it, I don't think. Yeah. Let's talk about presentation and get into that more. Can you describe, because I think this confuses a lot of people when they're dry fly fishing, is can you describe the different rise forms and what those forms should tell us about how to fish them? Sure. In the book, I really just limited to the three rise forms, sipping, bulging, and splashing or gulping. So a sipping rise form is pretty self-explanatory. You know, if you see a fish just gently picking flies off the surface, or even if he's lifting his whole mouth up and just taking them gently from the surface, that's a sipping rise. I should also say, by the way, even though I limit it to three, every once in a while you see weird stuff. I was fishing on the Delaware's main stem one time, and, and I was standing on the edge of a riffle, and I was watching these fairly large size 14 mayflies come down, and they just disappeared, Roger, like, like they were beamed into outer space. And <laughs> I didn't see a head. I didn't see a snout. It, it took me a while just sitting there watching to figure out what was happening, and there was a very large trout that wasn't coming up to the surface at all. He was laying just beneath the surface and just sucking the water down into his mouth and eating the flies that way. Hmm. And uh, yeah. yeah, which was pretty cool to see. Bulging rises, yeah, a lot of time they get people excited. They think it's a big fish. You know, you sort of hear a sound. and But a lot of time that is fish that are taking something just beneath the surface. So people will, will see. And what you're really seeing is you're seeing their dorsal fin come up to the top of the water and not even their mouths and they're eating an emerger or something. So you can still maybe use a dry fly, something that has a wing that extends above the water so you can see it. But during those types of rises, the best thing would to be either fish a floating nymph or fish a dry fly where three quarters of it's going to be beneath the surface and it's suspended by something that floats. How often do the you, last or, or excuse me, and then I'll let you, you go oh, sure. on there. Uh, how often or do you ever fish a dry fly with a, an emerging type dropper or just below it, you know, six yeah. inches? Absolutely. That's very effective. I do that a lot in Montana. When I was on the Delaware, I, I don't know, there was something about picking one of those giant fish and just deciding you were going to catch and trying to match wits with just one fly against him. I, I sort of generally tied one fly to my leader when I fished the Delaware. Mm -hmm. But out here, I certainly do that a lot. And even if it's not an emerger, even if it's a black ant or something like that, I can't see that could sink a little bit beneath the surface. A lot of bugs drown over time once they're churned through ripples and everything, and they may be floating just beneath the surface. It's worth yeah. trying something like that. Yeah. And then the third rise? Sure. The it's, gulping? You know, splashing yeah. or, or gulping rises, sure. The splashing rises, a lot of times people associate that with, with fish that are eating caddisflies because caddis are emerging from the water so quickly, and that's pretty true. Sometimes fish get excited, too, during particularly big hatches. I can think of times with brown drake hatches 
where these giant bugs are just coming down and fish are just becoming dark and, and fish are just slurping these things off the surface, just gulping them down. I usually associate splashing, gulping with happy fish that are pretty actively eating. You just got to figure out what it is and what fly they want to take to imitate it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, yeah, so the last one, the gulping, is pretty much a fish taking an adult off the surface. You're not not being subtle about it, like the rolling fish that's taking the the emerging insect as well. But that's, I mean, I learned that the hard way down on the lake here by my house in that I wasn't fishing those rises properly, and they were feeding on emergers. And as soon as I put a dropper (laughs) on there, I started picking up fish like crazy. But uh, they didn't want that adult. Yeah. Yeah. So in your book, you talk about working pieces of water. What's your strategy when you, and of course, this depends on whether you're fishing still water or streams, but let's just talk about streams because I think people tend to fish those more often. How do you work a section of water? How do you break it down and what's your approach? Sure. I think of a couple of important points. I generally fish dry flies while I'm moving upstream. You know, most of the fish are going to be facing upstream, so you can approach them from behind, and they're less likely to spook from you. One of the most important things, and I tell my clients all the time when I'm guiding, the two things that I think people do the most that mess up the dry fly fishing is, A, they, they always want to cast on the far side of the river before they even prospect on their side, and, and I think they, they miss a lot of fish they could have caught that are on their side. Fish don't know which side of the river they're laying in, right? <laughs> so they, <laughs> they, they don't know they're supposed to be eating over there, so they might be three feet from you when you're trying to throw 30 feet across. Yeah. Um, the other thing is stay out of the water. I have a heck of a time trying to keep people from splashing around in the water. If it is at all physically possible, do not enter the water. Only bad things can happen when you're in there. You know, you're going to scare something. You're going to wait too close. Now, there are times and certainly rivers where you have to get in the water to fish to them. But if it's at all possible, stay out of there. Once you're casting, I also try to tell people not to false cast over water they haven't fished yet and and to limit their false cast in general. People, again, tend to false cast a little bit too much. And, and if you're waving that stuff, you, you figure trout, they don't want to get eaten, right? And their predators come from two places, from overhead or the bigger fish in the water. And lots of things overhead, you know, whether it's a, an osprey or a person with a fly rod, they don't like stuff waving over their head, so they get shy. When you're fly casting, when you're blind casting over the fish's head, they can really freak them out. So I try not to blind cast over a spot I haven't presented my fly to yet. The last thing is, once you're fishing, I target structure. Structure can be a whole lot of things. It can be a a little ledge where shallow water meets deep water. It can be uh, near a fallen tree that's in the stream or around boulders, any places like that that's deep enough to cover a fish. And sometimes it may be shallower than you expect. So if it's deep enough to cover a fish and they have some protection from overhead predators, you could definitely find fish in there. That's, you know, one of the reasons why they like the lion scum lines so much because it gives them a little overhead cover. Now, do you break a section of water down like some people do as a grid and work a three-foot section, a three-foot section, or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. Or do you just work inside out? Sure, I absolutely grid the water, and that's one of the instructions I give to my clients when I'm guiding. I tell them to picture the – of course – 
this is when you're prospecting with dry flies, right? You're not seeing any fish rising, so you're just right. casting, trying to figure out where the fish are. I tell them to think of the water as a three-foot by three-foot grid. The inner edge of the grid is along the bank that you're standing on, it, you know, right where the shallow water meets the deeper water. It extends three feet up from you. It extends out towards the center of the river three feet and then back down towards you three feet, and then the box closes when it comes back to you. And I generally tell people to make three casts to the first line of the box, three casts to the center, and three casts to the outer edge and keep moving. I spend a lot of time in the book talking about pace, and I think particularly during non-hatch periods, we spend way too much time casting to unproductive water. Some fly fishers, they sort of lack confidence, and they think there's something they're not doing right. And if they just get this drift a little bit better, maybe the fish will eat it. But depending on where you're fishing, there's a chance that, A, there's no fish in that spot, or, B, they're not the ones that are going to eat your fly. So you need to keep moving to find them. And, uh, again, I spend a lot of time talking about it and really dictating your goals for the course of the day. Do you want to catch a lot of fish? Do you want to catch one big fish? And that will impact how long you're fishing these three-foot boxes and how much time you're spending there. Yeah, but some of those boxes are really fishy, Paul. There's got to be a fish in there. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's always I mean, good to have a little faith. Three, three more casts. Three more casts. <laughs> it's got to be in right. there. Uh, but, uh, yeah, yeah. And then the place that you never thought there was going to be a fish, boom, you know, first cast, right? <laughs> yeah, that seems yeah. to happen all the time, right? Yeah, yeah. Clinton in New Hampshire wrote in, he says, when fishing a dry fly, a dry to fish that are not visibly rising, would you be more likely to go to a smaller fly that is more subtle or something larger to grab their attention? Again, it's going to sort of depend on the type of water you're fishing and the time of year you're fishing. If I was fishing lower water, I would probably tend to a more of a mid-sized fly. If you're fishing higher water, I'd probably go larger with the fly, and, and that would also apply to whether or not you're fishing streams that are, are largely riffles or flat poles. I would tend to go smaller on, on the calmer the water and larger. And Generally, I would say overall, if you're fishing a big river and nothing's happening and you're just looking to catch one big fish, a big old fly, something that might grab his attention and make him come up is probably the best way to go. Mm -hmm. Any particular flies that you go to to get a rise like that? Any patterns when you really don't know and they're really not rising anything in particular? Sure. Something that looks sort of squirrely like a holo humpy, you know, that pattern when it first came out, they called them hippie stompers. Yeah, um, hippie stompers, um, yeah. Right, yeah. Something that looks a little weird, something that doesn't look like anything but sort of looks a little like a lot of things. Just to try to, you know, you're looking for a triggering mechanism, right? Something that makes a fish decide to come up and eat that fly. So I like some of those goofier-looking flies that have a whole lot of different elements combined that might inspire a trout to eat them. Okay, okay. George in Delaware writes, uh, I have a question about determining what fly to use on finicky fish. On a recent trip to Island Park, Idaho, after a weather transition in which it went from no rain to a high air temperatures to several days of rain and a significant drop in air temps from 80s to 60s. Fish were not taking surface flies even through, though several hatches were going on, trichos, caddis, occasional mahoganies. There were several one-and-done risers, but nothing consistent. 
My question is, what sequence of flies would you use in such a situation to zero in on the ones the fish would take? Sure. In my opinion, those are real tough conditions to fish. I have this theory that, that I think works out pretty well. Fish like stability, right? So when I was a young fly fisher, everybody would say a rainy, cloudy day, the fishing is going to be great. But if it had been really hot and sunny for a few days and it turned colder and rained, sometimes the fishing would be really crummy, even if there were some bugs. I think fish, trout in particular, adapt to the circumstances in which they're given. And when there's a significant weather change, whether it gets warmer in the winter or whether it gets colder in the summer, sometimes it can put them off for a day while they recalibrate what they're eating and, and where they're holding and things like that. So the answer to the question might have been that the fish were just off that day. There's nothing that you could have done that would have made much of a difference. But I'm trying, would you mind reading the end of that question again, the second half of that? Yeah, it's talking about the drop in temperatures. There were several hatches going on, trichos, caddis, occasional mahoganies. There were several one-and-done risers, but nothing consistent. And his question is, what sequence sure. of flies would you use to try to figure that sure. situation out? One-and-done risers, too, are the worst thing in fly fishing. There's no pattern to them. For all you know, they just rose up and ate a pine needle off a tree. Trout learn by eating things, and sometimes they're just testing stuff out. They're impossible to predict. I will say this. I don't spend much time with one-and-done fish, and I try to pull my clients away from them when I'm guiding. But if I decided that I wanted to try to catch one or somebody else, I would try one of those three flies, and I would drop the other one off of it, and I would try presenting it to flies. And I would cast those flies on top of exactly where I saw it rise the last time. Because you're guessing. You don't know where that fish is. For all you know, it's 10 feet away, or maybe it's halfway down the pool. Or maybe it's still laying right there. But the only way to figure it out is to try. I generally also like to do it with a dry and dropper because maybe most of the time you're not staring at the water when a one-and-done fish comes up. So you think it ate off the surface, but maybe it did a bulging rise and just ate beneath the surface. There's no way to know for sure, and it may not rise again. So I like to present it with options, with a dry fly and an imp dropper. Okay, okay, good. Stephen in Los Angeles wrote, uh, how do you put slack in the leader without putting slack in the fly line? Sure. First, there's a couple of things in fly fishing that I think we've gone a little too far with. Like never use your wristing your wrist when you cast. Well, you have to use your wrist when you cast, right? Uh, another thing is you always have to mend. Well, there's a lot of times when you shouldn't mend. And it's sort of the same with slacking your leader or your fly line. You have to have a little bit of slack, right, or your fly is just going to drag the whole time. The best way to achieve that with putting the slack in your fly line rather than your leader is casting to a fish from an upstream position and using a reach cast where the fly lands in the water floating downstream of your leader, of your tippet, your leader, and your fly line. But there still has to be a little slack in that system or you're not going to, or the fly is going to drag. It's real important to keep your rod tips sort of closer to the water. Slack is only a problem because you can't set the hook. You don't want so much slack that when you lift, 
you're not moving the fly. You're just moving the line and taking the slack. So if you have a little bit of slack, but you're fishing your rod tip close to the water, as you lift it to set the hook, you'll take up that slack, and it won't be an issue. Yeah, yeah. One demonstration I saw Lefty Cray do at one of the fly fishing shows, and he was talking, and this had to do with setting the hook, but he was demonstrating how keeping your tip down towards the water and what difference that made. So he did this long cast in the casting pool, and, you know, he had his tip, like, up, you know, like, let's say, 45-degree angle, and then did a strip, and the fly didn't even move, right? And then he <laughs> put the tip down and took in the slack and then did the strip, and the fly moved, you know, and it was kind of a really sure. simple demonstration of how rod position can make a difference with the slack, too, and in, in the hook set. So, you know, I think that... There's a lot going on, like you just said. You know, you know. Yeah, for are sure. Getting, are you getting drag? Do you need to have a quick hook set? You know, right. all those things. Yeah, I think the word for the night is it depends. Yeah, so. <laughs> I think that's that's always in fly fishing, right? It probably most yeah. things in life. I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you want to get up in the morning? Well, it depends. <laughs> yeah. Right. What's on my honeydew list? Fair enough. Right? Yeah. Um, we have another question. Bill Nicholson in Pennsylvania. He says, technical waters are difficult to fish because they are usually bug factors and there often could be several hatches going on at once or several stages of hatches happening simultaneously. How do you key in on which one the trout are focused on? I know that catching bugs and observing the type of rise helps give us clues about what's on the trout's menu. I plan to read the book, Ring of the Rise, this fall to learn more about rise behavior. What process do you use to decipher the trout's feeding code? Sure. That's a great question, and mm -hmm. certainly in the Ring of the Rise, it's just a wonderful book. I think when it comes to this, Roger, the most important thing is to pick a single fish and decide you're going to catch it. People, particularly during heavy hatches, you may have fish rising all around you, and before your flight one, it doesn't need you pick it up and you cast another one, and you never really settle in to watch what a specific fish is doing. The only way to know what it's eating, particularly if there's different hatches, is to stop what you're doing and watch it, and then try to imitate it from there. Uh, in the book, I talk about you know having a rifle approach rather than a shotgun approach. When you start shotgunning the fish and you're casting all these different fish that are rising maybe to simultaneous masking hatches at different intervals, and you know you, you generally don't catch them. So you need to pick one, pick the one that either you think you can catch the easiest or, or maybe it's the biggest. Watch what it takes, and then present your fly in the best manner in, in which you can. If they don't take your fly, then let's say you're sitting there and you're watching it eat sulfurs and you're sure it's eating a sulfur and they don't take yours. What I do, and this is another reason why I carry all those stupid fly patterns, is try a different pattern that imitates the same insect. So maybe they're king, they're looking for a specific thing. Maybe they're not eating sulfurs that are laying flush like some paradigm. Maybe they're eating sulfurs that are just ready, just moving to lift off the water. So maybe a gentle breeze shuddering a Catskill-style sulfur might be the ticket to that. Okay. Okay. We have some questions come in here on the, the Internet. I want to try to knock these off quickly. Just a random question about the Delaware. Do you prefer the West Branch or the East Branch of the Upper Delaware? <laughs> the West Branch is magnificent, and, and it would be hard to argue that, but I lived on the end of the Beaverkill. I was close to the East Branch. The, the East Branch at 
certainly had less pressure. And at the time, I preferred the East Branch because it had giant fish in it as well, but there was far less pressure than okay. the West Branch. Brad Holm in San Diego, when dry dropper fishing, are you tying off the bend of the hook or to the eye of the hook? I almost always tie off the bend of the hook. Again, uh, Charlie Meck wrote a wonderful book called Fishing Tandem Flies that talks about a whole bunch of different ways of doing it. But I generally keep them in line and, and tie off the bend of the lead hook. Okay, another question here, David Myers and Morrison. And he says, Paul, could you tell us how you came up with the mayfly hook and how it improves the various dry fly patterns? Sure. This is a long story, so I'm going to try to keep it as brief. I'll make it brief, Roger, I promise. Okay. So I was obsessed <laughs> with imitating upside-down dry flies is really where this started, to try to keep the hook point out of the water, just because that seemed like it should matter, but 99% of the fish we catch have the hooks in the water, so it probably doesn't matter. But then I started looking at our flies and realizing that we weren't really imitating the posture of a mayfly. Things that other writers certainly had written, Vince Marinero talking about the light pattern that a, a mayfly's feet make on the surface of the water. A parachute-style hackle really made a lot of sense to me. But when you fish a standard parachute, the hackle's on top of the body, not under it like the legs in a mayfly. The other thing is a lot of our parachute posts and things like that are tied straight up and down perpendicular to the hook point when real mayflies slant their wings back over top of their bodies. And that was the idea for it. So I started bending hooks that would allow me to tie a parachute hackle underneath it, yet still not interfere with the, the point of the hook, and naturally slant the wings back over the body. Getting the the degree of bend was real important, so I would tie a bunch of flies, bend at a certain angle. I would I would trace them on paper, and then I would fish the flies. If they worked, I would burn the flies off with a lighter and make <laughs> notations and try them again. And, and over the course of time, I isolated what I thought was the best bend for that hook. And, that's and that was the uh, <laughs> Daiichi 12-30. Yeah. Uh, so the real answer, that came from a person that doesn't really have much of a life, Roger. Is that probably the, <laughs> the answer to the question? <laughs> yeah, Paul, yeah. <laughs> here it is, Paul Weimer's Mayfly Hook. I'm just looking it up here. I just want to get a, a visual of it, but my computer's going slow. So, oh, there, here we go. Bronze round bend, 2X long, upturned shank, down eye, mini barb. Yeah, so if people miss that, got a little crook in its neck is what it's got, right? <laughs> Pretty um, much it, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so people, it, if you miss that. It certainly wasn't in, inventing the wheel. Yeah, if you missed that in the bio, it's uh, Daiichi 1230, so Google that and you'll see what Paul's talking about. Okay, we only have a, a couple more questions here. Let me check. There was uh, a couple here that came in on them. Let's see. Oh, yeah. Are cripple flies more productive flies because they don't float well? I guess this is meaning in the surface. Sure. Cripple flies, first of all, aren't flies that you necessarily can count on fishing all the time. Mayfly cripples are usually created by inclement weather, wind that's blowing them over, cold temperatures that are, are slowing their transition from nymphs and, and messing them up. That said, trout seem to look for them. You can fish cripple patterns, even if you're not seeing any cripple naturals on the water. 
fish, I believe, key on them because they know a wild trout's not going to waste energy to feed that it's not going to get a return on its investment. So it doesn't want to fly to the surface or rise to the surface to get a, have a mayfly fly away by the time it gets there. So it sees these crippled insects and knows that, you know, as much as a fish can know anything, it sees them as food that's not going to escape. So it rises up, and that's why they eat them. Yeah. Another question from uh, Bob O'Donnell in Maryland. He says, do you feel that almost all refusals are due to drag on the fly versus the fly pattern itself? I think that's certainly a lot of it. Um, I saw this really cool, I couldn't tell you what it is at this time, it was years ago, but I saw this really cool video on YouTube that was showing a fish eat a dry fly, and you would have swore the fish took this fly. And they do this on the Delaware all the time. And when the angler lifted up, there was nothing there. And they were able to zoom in and show that, A, that fish was actually refusing it. And sometimes what I think happens is the fish is about to eat the fly, and it feels the tippet bump against its face or something like that. And well, they can force water back through their gills and blow that fly back out and quickly refuse it. But I think drag certainly is one of the main culprits. By the way, Charlie Meck again was, uh, he didn't experiment. He was fishing a, a pond that was crystal clear. And he's casting these flies in there and watching the, the fish eat them. And fish were able to spit those flies before his brain could tell his arm to lift the hook. So a fish can spit a fly incredibly fast. So it, it can be multiple reasons why they decided at the last minute. And a lot of the times we, we think the fish ate the fly, it was the last minute refusal. Yeah, yeah. Okay, a couple more here. Jeff in Connecticut. He says, I have fished the Spring Creeks in Paradise Valley, particularly Nelson's, for many years in early July. The fish in these creeks are fished over daily by some of the best fly fishers in the world, and as a result are, are very difficult to fool on a dry. Most guides opt for a pheasant tail nymph, but I would like to catch them on top. Any tips for these tough fish patterns? Sure, absolutely. I agree. Those are some of the toughest streams in the country to catch fish on dry flies. A couple of things, you know, A, again, stay out of the water as much as possible. And on the Paradise Valley Spring Creeks, a lot of places you can stay entirely out of the water. A reach cast is absolutely vital. Casting the fish from a position upstream of them rather than lining them from downstream is super important. Two other things I think of is, is try to show them something a little different. PNDs that are hatching on the Pew Spring Creek all summer long, uh, like, like the, the gentleman that asked the question said, you know, they're seeing the, how many comparisons can you show a fish day after day? So try to show them a pattern that, that's less common, something that, that's old, something you messed around with and came up with yourself, something a little bit weird. Another key, I was just guiding on the Pew Spring Creek a few days ago in the middle of uh, a PND hatch, which the fish were being a little snotty. I tied on a fat Albert, which basically looks like a big foam cricket, and fish were eating that in spite of the fact they were normally feeding on a PND hatch. So wow. try to show yeah. them something a little different. Um, and one other thing on those creeks, you know, there's going to be fish that are lying in tough spots behind logs and under branches. And on the Paradise Valley Spring Creeks, a lot of people are going to ignore those fish um, because they tell themselves they can't catch them, or they tell themselves they're just going to get snagged. And I try to tell people all the time just to go for it. I've been surprised many times by when I was guiding casters that 
didn't have a lot of casting ability and they were fishing these tough fish, that they would throw a lucky cast in there and sure enough, this fish would just come up and eat it from time to time. Don't be afraid of getting snagged. Look for the hard areas because a lot of people ignore them and chuck it on in there. Okay, okay. One from Brian in Pennsylvania. When fishing across currents, how do you keep the fly in the seam? Again, upstream position, reach cast. Once the fly starts to go, you gently shake line out the tip of your rod to extend your drift. I have a good friend here in Montana. His, his name's Matthew Long. He's one of the best guides in the state. And Matthew and I were talking about fishing double dry flies. And, and one of the reasons why he doesn't like to do it much is because it's nearly impossible to keep two dry flies at once in the proper current seams. And, and that's mm. certainly something to think about is fishing tandem flies. Tandem drives particularly become more, more uh, prominent. Maybe limit yourself to one fly and, and try to get that to the fish in its feeding rhythm with an upstream presentation with a reach cast. Yeah. Last question from Rick Bobrick in Medusa, New York. He says, what are, the, what are a few of the big differences between dry fly strategies out west compared to those that you developed on the limestone streams of central Pennsylvania and the upper Delaware system? Sure, that's a great question. <laughs> you're going to love this, Roger. It depends, right? So <laughs> if you're fishing the Paradise Valley Spring Creeks, there isn't a lot of difference between fishing the Delaware River or fishing Penn's Creek or some other limestone stream. They fish pretty similar. If you're talking about fishing the Madison or something like that, one of the big advantages, Another one of my theories is that we fly fishers most of the time just catch the trout idiots, right? We catch the dummies. So <laughs> if you're fishing a stream that only has This is getting personal fish, here, Paul. This is getting right, personal. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? So if you're fishing a stream that only has 500 fish per mile, there's only X amount of dummies that are available, right? But if you're fishing a stream that's got 2,000 fish per mile, there's a lot more dummies. So I, I think that's one of the reasons why the western fishing is so productive, because there's just so many fish in the streams. And also, if there's one big difference between the patterns and in the west versus the east, out here we fish a lot more foam flies and a lot more heavily hackled stuff because a lot of the water's rougher. But again, that's certainly true in the Madison. It's not exactly true in the Henry's Fork. So it all depends where you're at. Yeah, yeah. Good, good. All right. Well, we've got to wrap this up now, Paul. We've covered a lot of ground and we've talked a lot, of, answered a lot of great questions. But we have to finish things off here. What we're going to do next is we're going to be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. And we'll also be giving away a copy of your latest book, Dry Fly Strategies, courtesy of Stackpole Books. Let's just give me a second and then we'll do just that. And just a reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find the link on, the, uh, on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of this show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. So now let's give away a few prizes. To win these drawings, you would have had to register on our show's registration database, and it's too late now, but if you didn't register for tonight's show, do so for the next one. Uh, you'll find a link on our homepage for our next show, and then you won't miss out on a chance to win one of these great prizes. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with information on how to receive your prize. 
So the first thing we'll be giving away is a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. It's a great organization to support, and uh, they do a lot in the way of conservation in both freshwater and saltwater, so uh, check them out. Our winner for that is, I'm going to fire up my database here, and uh, it is... Winner is Mark Nelson in Washington. Mark Nelson, so congratulations, Mark. So we'll get back with you on how you can uh, get going on your prize. And, and then we're going to give away a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, which you can look at at amatobooks.com, as well as all the books that they publish on fly fishing. Uh, some great, great books there as well. The winner for that is Brad Holm. So Brad Holm asked a number of questions tonight. So congratulations, Brad. Hope you enjoy that subscription, and uh, I'm sure you will. Now, to win Paul's book, let's see. I've got to clear my queue here. All right. You go to our homepage. You fill out that form there with your answer. First, uh, put in your name and your location, and the first one to get it right wins Paul's book, Dry Fly Strategies, courtesy of Stackpole Books. I'm sure you'll want to check it out if you don't win. You can see a link there right on our homepage on the right-hand side there to Paul's book. You can buy the book through us if you'd like. And I'm sure there's many other options as well out there. So check it all out. And by the way, Paul, before we give away your book, would you please share with people how to find you up there in Montana? You, you have a website, uh, email address, whatever you want to share. Sure. Uh, WeemerFlyFishing.com. Okay. WeemerFlyFishing.com. So if you'd like to go book a trip with Paul, there you go, and see what he's up to up there. Do just that, and I'm sure you can get books from Paul as well. Here we go. So the question is, early on in the show, I asked Paul about his routine for keeping flies afloat. He mentioned three products that he uses to keep flies afloat. What are they? Name them, and if you're the first person to do that, we will uh, send you Paul's book, or actually Stackpole will send you Paul's book. So that's the question. What are the three, the three products that uh, Paul was using to float his flies? All right. Think that's hard enough, Paul, or is that an easy one? I'm trying to remember. I was like, oh, what, what was it? So I, I might, I might <laughs> Great. <laughs> and you're supposed to tell me whether I get the right answer or not. So, oh, uh, right, right, right. I, uh, I, yeah, I think it was a good question. Okay, okay. Let's, uh, let's see if we've – okay, we've got some um, answers coming in here. Hold on just a second. Come on, computer. Okay. And let's see. The first one is Tempco Dry Fly Magic, Amadou Patch, and Frog's Fanny. I think he's got it, don't hey, you? That's the winner. That's the winner, and that's Robert O'Donnell in Columbia, Maryland. So congratulations, Robert. Nice job. And then we have more coming in. Yep. Uh, David Myers, you're just a little bit slow on the submit button there. <laughs> and Stephen Garner, no, you didn't get, you didn't get it right. You only got one of them, Brad. So uh, there's some other entries coming in here, but the first one did it, and that's what counts. Robert, 
you need, I've got your email address, I've got your name. What you need to do is in that same box, send me your mailing address or your shipping address so that we can get that to Stackpole and get that book out to you. So send that to me, and I'd really appreciate it. We'll, we'll get that taken care of. With that said, Paul, I really appreciate you being on with us. We ran a little long tonight, but there was so much good information coming, I didn't want to stop it. And uh, it was just a pleasure to talk with you again. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Roger. It was a lot of fun. Oh, good, good. Hopefully, you've all found the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link on the top-line menu in that archive. You'll find all of our past shows, over 340 shows now. You can search by keyword, keyword phrase, like trout, tarpon, Madison River, dry fly fishing, whatever. And go ahead, explore. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at, at what you discover there. Lots to learn. Our next broadcast will be on September 22nd, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, I'm going to interview Eric Naguski. And our topic for the show will be fly patterns for Pennsylvania waters. Eric is a professional guide in Pennsylvania, has over 20 years of experience in fishing the state's waters, and he'll be showcasing some of his favorite flies, tips on tying them, how to rig them up, and how to fish them. So join us so that you can learn how to fish the waters of Pennsylvania more productively. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Lee's Ferry Anglers, Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing, and Enrico Puglisi Flies for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone.